Hi, everyone. Guess we're making a little bit of a habit of this, huh? Don't worry, no audio problems this time. I think I've honestly got them licked, at least for the time being. But I did make a factual error in the main episode, and I don't like having those sitting around uncorrected, so I wanted to address it here. Turns out that when I was reading IMDb, I got the bus rider at the beginning and the bus rider at the end confused and credited Joanne Willett as Carrie. That's a mistake on my part. Carrie is actually played by Sidney Walsh, who was at the start of a long career as a working actress when she made this movie. Walsh doesn't have any real signature roles apart from this, but she's made a ton of guest appearances in all sorts of TV shows like Mantis, The Adventures of Lois and Clark, The Twilight Zone, and Castle, and she does not deserve to be confused with another actor. Thank you very much for your patience as I correct myself, and now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, from 1985. And look, I know this is where I normally start with the writer and director, but I'd like to first take a look at that title, because it makes no goddamn sense. It would have made sense for the first movie, where Freddy was getting his revenge on the parents of Elm Street for killing him, even though that's a pretty tangled mess in and of itself, because they were entirely justified in their actions based on the admittedly highly unlikely scenario presented to us in that film. But it definitely doesn't make sense here, in a movie where the people Freddy might want to get revenge on for the events of the original Nightmare don't even appear, and he's mainly seeking to get a physical body so he can continue the killing spree he started when he was alive. This is literally the opposite of Freddy's revenge. Freddy is moving on and loving life. He's over what the parents of Elm Street did to him, and he'd like to get back to doing what fulfills him again. But, since you can't call it A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy performs a little homicide as self-care, we instead got Freddy's Revenge, written by David Chaskin and directed by Jack Shoulder. But the story of this film begins before either of those men got involved, with Bob Shea and New Line Cinema. Only their second release, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, was a huge financial success for people who weren't Bob Shea and New Line Cinema. As I mentioned in my episode on the first installment, they were constantly plagued by financing problems during the making of Nightmare, and Shay was forced to agree to a lot of bad deals in order to drum up the cash to get the movie made. As a result, a lot of the profits from Nightmare wound up going to creditors, leaving the fledgling studio only barely better off than when they started. But they retained the Freddy property, and in the mid-80s, when slasher sequels were reliably bankable, that was a pretty big deal. Shea immediately moved into production on a sequel, offering Wes Craven the chance to direct a script that was brought to him by studio employee David Chaskin, after turning down a second script by screenwriter Leslie Bohem about a pregnant woman who moves into Nancy's old house and finds her unborn child consumed by dreams of Freddy. We'll get back to that in a few episodes' time. Craven turned Shay down, though, both because he was unimpressed by the script and because he thought Shay micromanaged the creative process to an unacceptable degree during their previous collaboration. In fact, the two men weren't even on speaking terms for several years. So the job went to Jack Shoulder, who directed New Line's first feature, Alone in the Dark. Those two movies, along with 1987's The Hidden, are probably his best-known films. Beyond that, the details get somewhat fraught. For many years, both Chaskin and Shoulder insisted they were merely making a possession film, and that they had no idea that there was any kind of queer subtext until the movie was released and people began to point out its homoerotic undertones. 
But as the years went by and the film began to receive a reevaluation from scholars looking at queer cinema, Chaskin began to playfully suggest that yes, he did in fact approach his screenplay from the angle that in an era of intense homophobia and the threat of AIDS, which killed 8,500 people in 1985 alone, nothing would be more terrifying to the teenage boys in the target audience than discovering that they might be secretly gay. This would have been an issue under any circumstances. A straight man writing a gay panic horror film isn't likely to be the best judge of what's homoerotic and what's homophobic, and this was an era when the term sensitivity reader didn't even exist. But the situation became even more fraught when Mark Patton, a gay actor who was closeted at the time, was cast as protagonist Jesse Walsh. Patton didn't have a ton of screen credits when he got the part, but the ones he did have were pretty choice. He played Joe Qualley in Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which was directed by Robert Altman, so just like Ronnie Blakely, he was an Altman protege appearing in a Freddy Krueger film, and it earned him plenty of attention. Getting his first lead role in a major motion picture was a pretty big deal, but once he got on set and production began, it became obvious to him that the film was going to get him typecast as gay characters in an era where it was becoming increasingly important for his own safety to avoid being outed. The documentary Scream Queen from 2019, starring Patton, provides a pretty good picture of what it was like to be gay in that era. With both Shoulder and Chaskin claiming ignorance of the film's subtext, most of the burden of criticism for what was seen at the time as an unacceptably gay franchise movie landed squarely on him, and he left the entertainment industry entirely until 2016. He's since resumed acting, although sadly his health is declining as of this year after decades of successfully managing his own HIV. Robert England never shied away from the homoerotic subtext. He returns as Freddy Krueger despite a lapse of judgment on Bob Shea's part in refusing to meet his salary demands. They filmed for about two weeks with the substitute Freddy before bowing to the reality that Wes Craven had figured out a whole movie ago that this was an actor's part and you couldn't just slap any old stuntman into the Freddy makeup and hope for the best. He maintains to this day that he understood exactly what was going on and played his character as a seducer more than a possessor, and he never placed any of the blame for the film's themes on Walsh. Because he's a class act, that's why. Oh, and speaking of that makeup, David Miller was unfortunately busy working on Cocoon when production began on Nightmare 2 and wound up recommending his good buddy Kevin Yeager to pick up where he left off. With no direct photo reference to work from apart from stills from the movie, Jaeger decided to put his own touches on Freddy, emphasizing the goblin-like profile of the face and making him look a little more like an imp than a burned human. He went on to do the makeup for the next two Nightmare movies, along with, oh, you know, The Hidden, Cherry 2000, 976 Evil, The Phantom of the Opera, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Hellraiser Bloodline, The Dentist, Bordell Wolf Blood, Face Off, Mission Impossible 2, and Aeon Flux just to name a few. His working partner on this film, Mark Showstrom, did the transformation effects, and his name's come up a couple of times on this podcast before. He worked on both Phantasm 2 II and 3, as well as Evil Dead 2, all special effects extravaganzas. But that's just a tiny sample from a career that's included the X-Files, the TV version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the live-action version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Star Trek Voyager, Deep Space Nine, and Generations, Dick Tracy, which had a murderer's row of makeup effects artists working on it, Deep Star Six, Prince of Darkness, From Beyond, and Videodrome. A true legend of the industry. Getting back to the actors, Jesse's best friends are Grady, played by Robert Rustler, and Lisa, played by Kim Myers. We've mentioned Rustler before in the Jacob's Wife episode, but it's been a while since that one came out and it's worth mentioning that he had a recurring role on Babylon 5 as Warren Keffer, plenty of character roles on film and television including the TV movie of Sometimes They Come Back, and sizable parts in the cult classics Vamp and Weird Science. Basically, he's a hard-working actor who's always in demand. And Myers, who got the part of Lisa for her uncanny resemblance to Meryl Streep, has also stayed in steady work ever since 1985. She was in Hellraiser Bloodline and did an extended stint on the TV show The Pretender, and she's also done smaller roles on everything from Seinfeld to Jag to Judging Amy. As always, we admire the heck out of our Hollywood day players who have to do everything the big stars can without ever developing an ego or an attitude. 
Speaking of which, Lisa's friend Carrie, who has a small role, but trust me, there's at least one very memorable moment in it, is played by Joanne Willette, also a day player and working actor, although she had a very lengthy role on Just the Ten of Us with none other than Heather Langenkamp. Sadly, it was that role that wound up saddling Langenkamp with her very own stalker for several years, a story we'll get back to in 1994 when it impacts the franchise in a metatextual way for A New Nightmare. That just leaves our adults in the story, and as with the first one, we get to spend a surprisingly large amount of time with the parents of the main characters. Jesse's mom and dad are played by Hope Lang and Clue Gulliger, respectively. Lang was a character actor and day player with roles dating back into the 50s, while Gulliger started his career in westerns before reinventing himself as a horror regular with both this film and Return of the Living Dead in the same year. He was Bert, owner of Unita Medical Supplies. As a result, it's probably Gulliger who'd be more familiar to horror fans with roles in The Hidden, Uninvited, Piranha 3 D, and Feast, although Lang had a role in David Lynch's cult classic Blue Velvet. Lisa's mom and dad are played by Melinda Fee and Tom McFadden. Fee was already out of acting by the early 90s, but she did have a pretty good run in the 70s and 80s, including a role in the hidden gem Fade to Black, and a recurring role in the 1970s TV series version of The Invisible Man. Not to be confused with Gemini Man, another 70s series about a man who could become invisible, although I'd certainly understand if you did get them mixed up a little. McFadden was similarly active in film and television over the course of the 70s and 80s, mostly television, but he did make an appearance in a film directed by England, 1988's 976 Evil, which we are going to get to someday, I promise. Probably right after Terror Vision and The Premature Burial. And Grady's mom and dad are played by Donna Bruce and Lyman Ward, who took on the part that Bob Shea wanted for himself, more on that later, I swear, with Bruce having only one acting credit, this film, and Ward showing up in all sorts of minor roles in film and television, but probably none more memorable than his turn as Ferris Bueller's dad in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. A film, I confess, that I just can't get into despite its avowed status as classic. I've just never been able to get the hang of Matthew Broderick, who somehow keeps getting cast as suave, smooth-talking con men despite being the absolute personification of flop-sweat nerdy awkwardness. And playing a small but crucial role as Coach Snyder is Marshall Bell, who took his role as a thuggish, unlikable authority figure and ran with it to over a hundred appearances in film and television. He was in Cherry 2000, Total Recall, Dick Tracy, Innocent Blood, The Puppet Masters, Payback, Virus, Starship Troopers, and an extended role on the show Good vs. Evil, almost always playing hard-nosed guys who talked and acted tough as nails. I guess it's nice work if you can get it. All of which leads us to Nancy's home, now the wholesome Midwestern any town of Springwood, complete with tree-lined streets, as we pick up where we left off. Sort of. Again, Craven was entirely unhappy with his experience working with Shay on the previous movie, and as you might recall, the ending was one of the sticking points between the two men. Craven wanted Nancy to have a real resolution to her struggles with fear as represented by Fred Krueger, and the thought of having her die at the beginning of the next film was a deal-breaker. So Shay compromised with the idea of being Nancy driven off in a car that resembled Freddy's sweater, which hinted at but didn't definitely present a dire fate for her, and wrote her completely out of this movie with a reference to rumors of her being institutionalized that were vague enough to satisfy her creator. Apparently Lingenkamp was never even offered a part in this movie. But they wanted to bridge the two films at least symbolically, so this movie opens with our protagonist, Jesse Walsh, riding home on a school bus that's driven by Robert England, not in makeup as Freddy, on what seems to be an ordinary school day. But as more and more people get off with every stop, leaving him alone with a pair of giggling teenage girls who seem to be mocking him under their breath, the atmosphere grows more and more tense until the bus speeds up instead of letting the girls out, going off-road into a blighted desert as the man behind the wheel shifts gears with a claw-gloved hand and a red and green striped sweater he definitely didn't have before. The bus finally comes to a screeching halt in the middle of nowhere, but the ground collapses under it in a massive sinkhole, leaving it teetering on two pillars of earth above a pit of lava that rages like the fires of hell. And those two pillars become one as Freddy deliberately rises from his seat and forces the kids to the back of the bus, imbalancing it and sending it teetering over the bottomless gorge. Freddy raises his glove to strike what seems like a fatal blow, 
But just then we cut to Jesse's mom, cutting tomatoes in an ordinary suburban home on an ordinary suburban morning as a terrified scream sounds in the distance from upstairs. Mommy? Why can't Jesse wake up like everybody else? Asks his little sister Angela, played by Christy Clark, as we cut to a shirtless and sweaty Jesse sitting bolt upright in bed before throwing off the covers to reveal his body clad only in a pair of briefs that leave very little to the imagination. And this is why, even though Shoulders never changed his story that he had no idea there was a gay subtext to the film, I find it a little hard to believe him. Patton is sexualized in virtually every scene in a way that would be called a textbook example of the male gaze if it was directed at a woman. He's being shot with lots of attention to his physique, and while I can believe Shoulder might not have known he scouted a gay bar for a location, and I might believe the chemistry between Patton and England was added by the actors, I just can't accept that someone would shoot this scene this way and not think they were making the movie to be either for gay men or straight women and New Line wasn't making horror movies for straight women in the mid-80s. Jesse comes down to breakfast, which for his dad appears to be two fried eggs and a whole plate of raw tomatoes, so he's clearly a sociopath, and we're given an immediate sense of the dynamic in the household. His father is stern and authoritarian, demanding a clean room and a polite attitude despite Jesse's obvious recurring nightmares and stressed-out demeanor, while his mom is loving and concerned but very much stuck in the classic role of a housewife in a very patriarchal household and unable to assert herself in the face of her domineering husband. It's a dynamic that's not good for a young man who doesn't fit into conventional models of masculinity, and it's only going to get worse as the film progresses. Jesse rides to school in his battered old convertible with Lisa, who gets one of the all-time stagiest introductions when Jesse opens the front door to find her facing the street for absolutely no diegetic reason, solely so that she can turn around and smile for the camera. And we jump ahead to gym class, where some of the kids are practicing archery while others are playing softball. Jesse's in the softball group, and he gets beamed by a fly ball hit by Ron Grady, who's going to be just Grady for the entire movie, because, you know, that's how you know some guys. Grady takes his base, and Robert Rustler is also getting objectified in short gym shorts, so we're right back into that male gaze directed at males' territory, but shortly afterward Jesse redeems himself by tagging Grady out in a squeeze play between first and second. Grady responds by yanking down Jesse's sweatpants, revealing a pair of buttocks only notionally concealed by a jockstrap, and it is virtually inconceivable to me that Shoulder didn't know what he was shooting here because this feels like the opening scene to a gay porn flick. And let's get this out of the way now. In a lot of ways, that's kind of a good thing. 1985 was not a good year for queer cinema, and honestly not a great year for the queer community in general. Paranoia over AIDS was forcing a lot of gay people back into the closet, and the disease itself was killing thousands of gay men while the Reagan administration remained conspicuously silent on the topic, and many other politicians either took the tack that this was God's way of getting rid of sinners, or worse suggested that the gays needed to be quarantined and isolated to protect the straight population. There were almost no intentionally queer stories out there, gay panic was frequently played for laughs, and so stories like this that slipped through the cracks with an LGBT plus subtext intact were in some ways like a lifeline to a minority that needed to see themselves represented in culture. But this is queer culture as written and directed by two straight men who at best had no idea what they were doing and at worst wanted to create a very intentional story about a teenage boy being seduced by a sinister older man, a man known for preying on the young and innocent, before being saved by the loving power of heteronormativity. Scenes like this, where Grady and Jesse practically tear each other's clothes off wrestling in the dirt until Coach Schneider breaks up the fight and forces both of them to do push-ups in a very fetishistic kind of sexualized punishment, are not coming from a place of understanding and empathy even before you get into the whole messy issue of what this film did to Mark Patton's career and reputation. That's the part that's worth objecting to, not the this-movie's-so-gay aspect that a lot of insecure straight people pointed to at the time of the film's release. 
Well, the boys do push-ups, and their form is so terrible Schneider should be ashamed of himself for the job he did educating them on physical fitness, Grady decides to make conversation with the new kid in town by explicitly mentioning that the coach cruises gay leather bars and likes quote-unquote pretty boys like Jesse, which overtly conflates homosexuality and pedophilia in a playbook that the religious right is still using today. That stereotype was mostly drawn from a misunderstanding of the relationship dynamics between gay men in this era, with no resources available to queer youth to help them understand their identity and orientation, it was very common for a younger person's first introduction to alternative sexuality to come through being recognized by someone older who'd already had a lot of the experiences they were dealing with and who could talk to them about their feelings. This led to many age imbalances in the LGBT plus community because when you finally met somebody you could really be emotionally intimate with, it felt very natural to become physically intimate with them as well. And unfortunately, with an equal paucity of resources for discussing things like consent and power dynamics, some of those relationships were not good even though very few of them actually involved people below the legal threshold for adulthood. An exaggerated and stereotyped version of those toxic relationships became seen as the norm for gay men, even though it was much less common than older men dating younger women, and most older people saw it as their responsibility to give younger queer people a positive first experience with sex. It was what Dan Savage once called campsite rules. Leave the less experienced partner in at least as good a state as you found them, if not better. I think it's probably more complex than that, but let's face it, we need to get back to the movie at some point, and this is as good a time as any. Grady also asks if Jesse started sleeping with Lisa yet, which Jesse takes as a taunt about his sexuality because that's kind of a sensitive subject for him as a closeted gay teen, but according to Grady, he's just making conversation. I do kind of love the way Robert Rustler plays what could have been a genuinely unlikable high school bully stereotype, and plays him with so much big himbo energy that you really do get the impression he doesn't mean any harm by anything he does. He scuffles with Jesse because he's a physical guy. He plays pranks because he's got a thick skin and assumes everyone else does too. And in general, he's just a goofy teen who hasn't yet learned that not everyone takes everything in stride the way he does. You can picture him growing up into someone very sweet once adulthood sands off some of those rough edges. And he probably wins prizes for his tropical fish, too. Schneider finally sends them to the showers, and as they're getting changed, Jesse mentions the place they moved into, and Grady expresses some surprise that they finally got someone to buy the notorious house on Elm Street where a drunken woman imprisoned her daughter and forced her to watch as the boy across the street got butchered. Jesse dismisses that as another prank, but as we see in the very next shot, nobody even took the illegal bars off the windows from five years ago, so there's a realtor out there somewhere who's risking their license. They did change the front door, though. It's now red and will remain red for the rest of the series. Jesse's trying to sleep, but the room is so hot that he can't settle and he goes down to get a cold drink while wearing what appeared to be doctor's scrubs? Okay, I know they're not, but it is a very odd choice of shirt. He spots someone moving around in the bushes outside, though, and goes to see who it is in a scene that's very reminiscent of Tina's death in the previous movie. Instead of being attacked by Freddy, though, he sees him down in the basement through an outside window, retrieving his glove from where Marge stashed it, and he goes back inside to find out what's going on, only to realize too late that Freddy's aware of his presence and he can't shut the basement door. We of course talked about the house as a Freudian metaphor for the mind of its inhabitant back in the Dead Alive episode, and it's worth remembering that the basement usually symbolizes repressed and buried feelings. In that light, it's highly significant that there's a man in Jesse's basement and he can't keep him shut down there. Jesse turns, calling for his dad, but Freddy's right behind him saying, Daddy can't help you now. And yes, even though we were a good 30 years away from the internet phenomenon of calling every handsome man above the age of 40 a daddy, the sexualization of the term was well underway by 1985. Everyone here knows exactly what they're doing. Especially Robert England, who here takes the role he portrayed for Wes Craven and makes it his own, with a scene that's probably one of the most memorable Freddy moments in the whole franchise. Kruger caresses Jesse's face with his blades and says, I need you, Jesse. We've got special work to do here, you and me. In a way that feels both sexual and dangerous at the same time. And Patton's facial reactions really convey the mix of horror and arousal he's feeling in that moment. 
England wanted to go further and insert one of the blades into Jesse's open mouth, but apparently one of the makeup artists pulled Patton aside and suggested that maybe simulated knife fellatio wasn't the way to go for an actor trying to stay closeted. Kruger then says, You've got the body, and I've got the brain, before taking off his hat and tearing through his own skin as if it was paper to reveal the pulsing gray matter just under the surface. As in the first nightmare, we've got self-mutilation as a theme, with Freddy almost reveling in the unkillable nature of his dream body. This is really the last movie before the series becomes a franchise, and it's interesting to see what Chaskin and Shoulder took away from Craven's original as a trademark of the character and what they left behind. Jesse wakes up screaming at the sight, like you would, and although his parents run in to check on him with commendable speed, almost like they were standing right outside the door waiting for their cue, Jesse insists it was just a bad dream and he's fine now. The next day, though, he falls asleep in biology class and has a very phallic dream of a serpent constricting itself around his throat. It turns out not to be a dream, though, but a prank played on him by Grady, he apparently managed to, in full view of the teacher midway through a lecture, sneak over to the tank where the six-foot-long boa constrictor that supposedly the class pet was being kept, and draped him over Jesse's shoulders without waking him and without alerting the teacher, played by Edward Blackoff, who is, let me again remind you, less than 20 feet away and staring directly at the students. Unless you're the kid from The Incredibles, this is a bit that kind of strains credulity, is what I'm saying here. After school, Lisa is swimming in the family pool when she gets a call from Jesse that she takes on her cordless phone, both of which would have been signifiers of wealth in 1985. They make plans, but Jesse's dad immediately breaks them when he insists that Jesse unpack all his belongings and clean his room before he can head anywhere, leading to one of the more infamous sequences as Patton dances his way through a room-cleaning montage in a way that feels very natural for a teenage boy in a private space where no one can see him, and intensely humiliating to put on movie screens for all of America to watch for the rest of time. There's a phrase, dance like no one is watching, and Mark Patton definitely takes it to heart here as he holds one of his childhood toys in front of his crotch and improvises simulated masturbation. This is another one of those very fraught scenes in hindsight. Chaskin points to it as an example of the way that Patton took the gay subtext of the film and made it text, then complained that the screenwriter and director pushed him out of the closet. Patton insists that he was forced to improvise when the scripted antics weren't working, and that everything he did had the blessing of the writer and director at the time, and it's only now when they see how the scene was received that they claim it was all his idea. Either way, it's a moment that Patton mentions in the Never Sleep Again documentary that he'd love to simply erase from existence, although by the time the Scream Queen documentary rolled around in 2019, he'd obviously come to embrace the camp aspect of the whole thing. And that's really kind of the unspoken truth about the whole Freddy series. This one has developed a reputation as quote-unquote the gay one, not as a pejorative for bad, but in the sense of being campy and queer-oriented, but the truth is they're all kind of gay because they're also incredibly artificial and exaggerated and theatrical in their aesthetic, and camp has become inextricably associated with queerness because queer people have had to perform heterosexuality for so long to survive and very quickly came to realize that there was no degree to which you could exaggerate heterosexuality that would come across as too over-the-top for straight people. Freddy's whole persona is camp. It's a performance of menace for the benefit of an audience of victims, and that's only going to get more true as the series progresses. This is just the installment that's least shy about admitting it. In any event, Jesse's mom leads Lisa up to his room right in an especially embarrassing moment in the dance, and it's humiliating but in a safe way because Lisa very clearly thinks it's cute although I'm way more interested in the sign on Jesse's door that says no out-of-town chicks. Not because of the sentiment, although man does that feed into the gay subtext of the movie, but because the I in chicks is clearly painted over another letter, and I can't stop thinking about Jesse going into an office supply store, buying a no out-of-town chicks sign and some whiteout, and giggling incessantly all the way home at his plans for it. Jessie's mom leaves the two of them alone together, which feels a lot like a sign that she knows more about her son's sexuality than she's letting on, and Lisa helps Jessie unpack and get organized. 
She finds a diary in the closet, supposedly left by Nancy when she lived in the house, and both the director and the production designer deserve a little side-eye here because there are multiple shots where you can very clearly see that Myers is looking at a completely blank book. This is what lorem ipsum is for, guys. The two read from it, at first titillated and amused by Nancy's voyeuristic descriptions of Glenn, but growing more and more horrified as the entries turn to descriptions of her dreams of Freddy. Jesse connects it to what Grady said earlier, clearly troubled, and that night he wakes into a dream of such intense heat coming from the furnace downstairs that the contents of his bedroom are slowly liquefying. He goes down into the basement and finds the furnace dark and cold, though, and can't stop himself from removing the knife glove from its hiding place. The furnace bursts into life, and Freddy appears, telling Jesse to try it on for size. Jesse refuses, dropping the glove, but when he trips and falls he wakes up to find himself genuinely down in the basement with the lethal weapon lying on the floor in front of him. It's clear that finding Nancy's diary escalated and accelerated whatever's happening to him. The next day, Jesse tells Lisa about his dream, and she tries to put a positive spin on it by suggesting that maybe he's having some sort of visions of whatever Nancy experienced, like the psychics police call in to help them solve their cases. Police do not actually call in psychics to help them solve their cases. She asks to borrow the diary, and then Carrie arrives and the conversation turns to the big pool party Lisa's throwing that weekend. You know, the one that certainly won't factor into the third act in any way. There's a bit of comedy that follows as Grady and Jesse banter about Coach Schneider in the locker room in a way that suggests they're genuinely becoming friends, and of course the coach hears them complain about him and sends them back out for another series of identical push-ups. Very identical, in fact, right down to the extras in the background. It's clear they just reused a previous shot. But that evening, in the oppressively hot living room, we get a scene of quote-unquote horror that Wes Craven cited as the reason he threw the script in the trash and never looked back. Because the family's pet parakeet is apparently possessed by Freddy, and it kills the other pet parakeet, and when Jesse tries to reach into the cage it escapes and dive-bombs the family? drawing blood and inciting, um, terror? Until it explodes in midair in a gout of flame? And Jesse's dad accuses him of feeding the bird a cherry bomb as a prank? I have no idea what's going on here. I don't know how this connects to the rest of the story, I don't know how it develops the themes of the movie, I don't know why anyone thought an evil parakeet would be scary, I don't know how it stayed in the script after one of the most respected horror directors in the history of the genre pointed out how catastrophically stupid it sounded. I'm glad it stayed, because I enjoy camp as much as the next guy, and if we're talking campy, there cannot be a better example than Clue Gulliger fighting a killer parakeet, but this is just the most bewildering little interlude in the entire series. That night, though, things start getting a little more real. Jesse wakes up in the middle of the night and goes wandering in a daze out to the gay bar downtown in the middle of a thunderstorm, wearing nothing but a pair of pajamas, and orders a drink from a leather-clad bartender played by Bob Shea himself. Never Sleep Again goes into the details of this unusual casting, which was apparently how Jack Shoulder saved his job after Shea asked to play Grady's dad and Shoulder told him the part needed a real actor. Shay bought his own costume for the role, according to the documentary, and had to be reminded by the owner of the adult novelty store to leave his young children outside when he stopped by to purchase it. And again, let me remind you that everyone making this movie insisted for years that they had no idea there was a queer subtext to any of it. The bartender gives Jesse a beer without even charging him, let alone carding him, and Jesse's just starting to pour it when Coach Snyder approaches him wearing a very stereotypical leather daddy outfit. Instead of avoiding the student who could out him as gay in the incredibly repressed 1980s when a teacher would almost certainly lose his job for being homosexual, especially a teacher who spends time with young men in locker rooms and showers, Schneider decides to punish him for being out late and drinking underage, I guess? by taking him back to the school and making him run laps in the gym. Which is incredibly sketchy and feels like the prelude to something even more problematic, but thankfully we're not going to see this progress any further because it's time for Freddy to make his murder debut. 
As Jesse showers and Schneider gets out some jump ropes from the equipment room, so okay, maybe we're going to progress a tiny bit more into uncomfortable territory, because there's a pretty clear implication that the coach plans to tie up and sexually assault one of his students, and this is a big example of the way that two straight and frankly homophobic men should not be writing and directing this material, an invisible force begins cutting the strings on the tennis rackets in the equipment room and Schneider begins to get unsettled. The tennis balls begin launching themselves out of their cans at him, followed by a slew of other athletic equipment, but just as he's getting ready to make a break for it, the jump ropes tie him up by the wrists and drag him into the showers. Within moments, he's bound hand and foot to the pipes, and then his clothes are ripped off and he's repeatedly, um, spanked with wet towels. Let me just remind you here that David Chaskin spent two solid decades claiming that this was just your average dudes being bros horror movie until Mark Patton gated up with his performance. The kill scene is pretty impressive, though. The room fills with fog and Freddy steps out of it to repeatedly slash Schneider's back as the showers begin to spray blood instead of water, and the coach sags in his bonds. Dead. It's a surprisingly late first kill for a slasher movie, almost 40 minutes into the 87-minute runtime. And this is really the last installment where we're going to see this kind of patience and emphasis on character development. The deaths started sooner in the original, but both films spent a lot of their time with the protagonist being stalked and terrorized, rather than emphasizing the body count and the gore. That's going to change with Dream Warriors, and not to spoil, but I think it's greatly to the series' detriment, so let's take a moment to appreciate this film's restraint before we cut back to Jesse, screaming in stark terror as he finds himself wearing Freddy's glove. We cut to the police bringing Jesse home, saying they found him wandering naked on the highway, and Jesse's dad naturally assumes he's on drugs because this is 1985 and we are squarely in the middle of the Reaganite obsession with teen drug addiction that was gripping America. I would have been 10 at the time this movie was released, too young to see it without pulling the kind of theater-hopping shenanigans that I was way too square and nerdy to even think about at that age, and I can remember the constant bombardment of anti-drug propaganda that hit us almost daily at school and in popular culture. Every kid's show had at least one public service announcement reminding us that users are losers. Every sitcom had a very special episode where someone developed a substance abuse problem and resolved it in 30 minutes, minus commercials, and the first lady took time out of her busy schedule of consulting astrologers to determine the foreign policy she was going to manipulate her senile husband into implementing to personally let us know that we should just say no. To drugs, of course. When it came to AIDS, which was claiming the lives of her close personal friends from the couple's Hollywood days, the safest policy was to not say anything at all. But, to be fair, to Jesse's dad, not Nancy Reagan, who doesn't deserve it and didn't reciprocate it with any fairness of her own, once you absent the supernatural as an explanation, there are really only two reasons why your teenage son would be wandering around naked in the middle of the night during a thunderstorm, and drugs are kind of the more hopeful one. The alternative would be that Jesse was developing schizophrenia, which often has its onset at this age, and even though they were making strides in treating the disorder with drugs, it was still a disease that made life a lot harder for a lot of people. So even though he's a jerk, I can kind of forgive him for wanting to believe that maybe his son just dropped acid and needs some help. Because he's a baby boomer, though, his conceptual toolkit for dealing with a son who's either addicted to drugs or undergoing a psychotic break is limited to get tough with him and show him some discipline, and his wife is clearly irate with his attitude toward Jesse as the young man heads to school. On arriving, he and Lisa find ambulances and cop cars galore due to the locker room's new status as a crime scene, and surprisingly enough, absolutely no one connects the murder of Coach Schneider to the teenage boy who was found wandering around naked in the middle of a thunderstorm with no alibi and no explanation for his behavior on the night of the killing. This despite Jesse's obvious guilt-stricken reaction to hearing about it from Grady. The cops in this town honestly get worse at their jobs with every installment. That night, Jesse has another dream, this time finding Freddy's glove in his dresser drawer, wriggling an invitation as Kruger's spectral voice commands Jesse to kill for him. He goes into his sister's bedroom to find her jumping rope and singing the skipping song from the previous installment, and the next morning he begins developing a Nancy-esque coffee habit as he confronts his dad about the murders that happened in the house five years ago, and man is that a long stretch of film to wait to put a time frame on this movie's relation to the previous installment? And his father admits that yes, of course he knew this was a murder house. That's why he got such a good deal on it. 
Kumi explaining that there's no verifiable market effect caused by the murder of the previous inhabitants of a house, because yes, I do have a weird amount of knowledge about real estate, and I will keep dragging it into this podcast when relevant, but y'all have heard this spiel before and I won't go into detail this time. Go back and listen to the Amityville Horror or the Halloween episodes to find out more. Dad insists that everything's fine and there's nothing supernatural going on, despite the constant heat and the exploding parakeet, but just then the toaster catches fire without even being plugged in, and the scene has to abruptly end because the screenwriter doesn't have any idea where to go from there that doesn't involve either unrealistic denial on the family's part or a decision to leave that ends the film before the third act can get going. So he instead cut to Lisa, reassuring Jesse that just because he had a bout of sleepwalking where he dreamed he killed his gym teacher, it doesn't mean that he has any actual connection to the currently unsolved murder that's the talk of the school. I think Lisa has a real future in the Springwood Police Department, folks. The two of them drive out to an abandoned power plant, which Lisa says is where Kruger took his victims back when he was alive. They go exploring, with Lisa trying to guide him to some kind of psychic vision because she's still convinced her new boyfriend has superpowers. I really shouldn't mock, she is only a teenager, and it's not like she should intuitively know how to handle the bizarre intrusion of the supernatural onto her mundane existence, but it is kind of unintentionally humorous the way she ignores so many serious red flags that Jesse is turning into a serial killer in favor of a scenario where he's a sexy psychic and they're going to go on the road and solve crimes together. Needless to say, it doesn't work like that, and they leave disappointed. That night, Jesse wakes up out of a dream to find himself standing over his sister's bed wearing the knife glove, in an absolutely chilling moment that's probably the film's most subtle and ominous scare, and he starts washing down stimulant pills with caffeinated soda in an attempt to avoid falling asleep again. But as with the previous film, this is only a stopgap measure, and he winds up drifting through the day in a haze of exhaustion despite his friend's best efforts to reach out to him. All of which leads to the pool party at Lisa's that evening, a big bash with about 20 teens who really should have been given more attention during the casting process, and the film's third act. It starts when Lisa's mother, who goes well beyond cool mom and straight into neglectful mom, lures Lisa's dad up to the bedroom and leaves the party completely unchaperoned. This leads to wild drinking, loud music, and uninhibited sex the way that absolutely zero high school students would have been comfortable enough to engage in at that age, but again, this is a series that regularly indulges in high camp, so we're going to forgive it for that. Lisa takes the opportunity to make a move on Jesse in the cabana, and he's at first reluctant to make out with her in a way that only a deeply repressed gay teenager can be, but he gets more and more into it as Freddy takes over. When Freddy unrolls a thick, slimy, gray tongue out of Jesse's mouth, though, that's a little too much for him, and he goes running out into the night in a moment that could not make its own subtext any more clear. Only that's a complete and total lie, because Jesse then goes racing over to Grady's house where his friend is hanging out shirtless in his room, and tells him that he's afraid there's a man trying to get inside his body and he needs to sleep with Grady tonight so he can feel safe. It is the culmination of all the movie's themes, with Jesse desperately trying to reclaim the power Freddy has over him by acknowledging and accepting his own sexuality, and in a movie that was actually coming from a place of honesty and openness about queerness, this might have led to a conclusion where Jesse defeated Freddy by admitting he was gay and separating that from the bloodlust Kruger conflated with desire. But that's not this film, and this wasn't an era where it could be. Instead, we get one of the most dazzling special effects sequences in a series that's famous for them. Jesse wakes up, convulsing in pain as Freddy's knives emerge from his fingertips and his skin splits open to reveal the red and green sweater. In a moment of surreal terror, Jesse opens his mouth to scream and we can see an eye peering out from the back of his throat, and the whole thing culminates with Freddy's head pushing its way out through Jesse's torso in a grotesque and impossible riff on the chestburster scene from Alien, while Grady pounds uselessly on the door to his room trying to get out. Freddy stands up, sloughing off the remnants of Jesse's body, and murders his rival for Jesse's affections in a genuinely brutal and terrifying moment. He then looks in the mirror, laughing, and when we cut back we see Jesse staring back at him covered in blood and wearing the knife glove. 
Broken and sobbing, Jesse flees before the cops can break in, escaping through the window to go back to Lisa as the only person he can even imagine confessing to at this point. Lisa's response to seeing her boyfriend walking in through the back door, covered in blood and admitting to multiple murders, is to say, You're hurt! Because she is all about ignoring the red flags at this point. She tries to tell him that it's all in his head, but outside the swimming pool begins to heat up just like Jesse's house as the hot dogs begin to sizzle and burst right on the cutting board. The beers also expand and pop open as they begin to boil, giving us a good enough look at them to notice that they're beer brand beer, and I kind of feel like either the director or the production designer needed to do a little more work to cover this, or else find a beer company that would agree to some product placement because it's really obvious in close-up like that. Inside the house, Lisa warns Jesse that Freddy relies on fear to make him strong, and that in a way it's his own victims who create him by empowering him with their belief, which treads perilously close to the kind of toxic positivity that a lot of these sketchier self-help movements deal in on a regular basis, but I think there is a message to be had here about keeping a calm head and confronting your problems, because it is true that the version of a problem anxiety creates inside your head is often worse than the real thing. Although, maybe not when the problem is that you've committed multiple murders. Jesse transforms into Freddy again, attacking first Lisa and then the entire party full of teens in a sequence that should have been terrifying, but fails on just about every level of execution. First, it's lit way too brightly. Sure, Jaeger's makeup for Freddy can hold up to that kind of scrutiny and still look impressive, but this is a scene that needs to have moody and atmospheric lighting to give Freddy the kind of menace he deserves, and everything is just so brightly lit. Second, the struggle between Lisa and Freddy is staged horribly, with multiple instances of him raking his razor-sharp claws down her legs to absolutely no effect. We should feel like she's in constant danger, or failing that, the film should make it clear that Jesse is holding Freddy back from hurting her, but instead it just looks like another version of the schoolyard scuffle Jesse and Grady had earlier. About the only good moment is when Freddy says, I love you, Lisa, in Jesse's pleading voice, and then a moment later says it again in his own voice with an entirely different and more menacing spin. And then the pool party itself. This is another moment that Craven warned everybody about, and they didn't listen. I don't have the same conceptual problems with it that he did. I think you can have Freddy killing people in the real world and still make it scary. But it's way overlit, and there are too many people to make a single killer convincingly threatening. Especially because they're almost all taller than Robert England. You really find yourself wondering why some of the jocks don't just tackle the guy and hold him down. It does not help that, as with the first movie, many of these supposed teens look like they could be old enough to have a mortgage on a house like this rather than attend a party at one. I think if they'd shot it with a lot more shadows and menace, and if Freddy had really massacred the kids instead of slicing up two or three out of the twenty or so present as if he was too distracted by the plethora of targets to really single out any of them, this could have been iconic. As it is, it really diminishes Freddy's threat right at the big emotional climax. I will say this for Shoulder, though. The way he frames Freddy in front of the broken pipe on the gas grill, with flames shooting out behind him as he intones, You are all my children now, is a great single shot, and he should be very proud of it. But everything else falls very flat. Lisa emerges to confront him, and it clearly threatens Freddy in some way because he walks straight through the garden trellis in a puff of flame and disappears. She realizes that he's afraid she might be able to reach Jesse and give him the strength to fight back, and also that he's returned to the abandoned power plant because it's a really impressive location the director went out of his way to show us earlier in the movie, and they wouldn't waste screen time on it if they weren't going to use it in the ending. She drives out there in Jesse's car, stealing herself for battle. She's confronted first by a pair of snarling dogs with human faces, which was unfortunately a pretty big ask for the makeup department, because they really wind up looking like regular dogs wearing the Bayfield baby mask from Happy Death Day. But when she refuses to give them her fear, they back down and allow her to enter. The plant is huge now, bigger on the inside than the outside, and with deep, cavernous recesses that are either some excellent matte paintings or some really impressive miniatures. But even so, it only takes her a few moments to find Freddy, and all told less than seven minutes to defeat him with the power of heterosexual love. 
David Chaskin joked in a 2007 interview that evangelicals should show this movie at gay conversion camps, and while he's since tried to walk that particular tasteless sentiment back a little, it's nonetheless clear that he meant it as the sincere message of this movie. If you're afraid of being gay, all you need to do is find a good woman who will love you so much that the scary homosexuals can't get you anymore. Denial is the best way to handle queerness in America, and all the homophobes are right. And ultimately, I think that's a message that most modern audiences have simply refused to accept, and thank goodness for that. This is an example of why representation matters behind the camera as well as in front of it, because straight people don't always know how to make queer movies, and it shows in films like this. The next day, Jesse and Lisa get on the bus to go to school together, and you can tell this is a dream almost immediately, because absolutely nobody seems concerned about the multiple murders Jesse committed or his current psychological state. It's as though they've all been briefed on what happened with Freddy Krueger, a ludicrously happy ending that's very reminiscent of Ronnie Blakely's sudden announcement that she's quitting drinking at the end of the original installment, and it unsettles in much the same way. Even if we didn't notice that Jesse always drives himself to school in the real world, we'd know something was wrong from the saccharine spin the film puts on events. And sure enough, the fake scare we get when the bus seems to be accelerating unexpectedly is followed by a real scare as Freddy's claw bursts out of Carrie's chest, and we end as we begin with the bus careening out into the desert once more. And maybe that's the message the filmmakers didn't know they were sending. Repression and denial doesn't change who you are, and refusing to accept something so deep and fundamental as your own orientation is only going to mess you up more. Jesse can never escape Freddy until he accepts what Freddy represents, and until then, the nightmare is just going to continue for him. Chaskin and Shoulder probably didn't put that in on purpose, but I think it's more true than anything they intended to say with this movie, and it's the message I'm going to embrace. And will I hang on to this movie? Yes, I think I will. It's not a perfect film. There are a lot of flaws emerging out of the conflict between its homophobic screenwriter and its gay subtext, and there are a lot more flaws emerging out of the rushed schedule, low-budget, and overbearing producer. Shea muscled in on Shoulder's territory not once but several times, essentially backseat directing when he saw things he didn't like and making it very difficult to keep to a single unified vision. But it's a movie with more to say than the series around it, and it's worth keeping for Mark Patton's performance, if nothing else. Honestly, I'd say it was my favorite in the whole series, but there's an even more impressive installment coming up. But we'll get to that another time. For now, if you want to talk about queer subtext, alternate titles for the film, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, believe it or not, we still haven't gone through all the movies my wonderful family got me for my birthday all the way back in August, and I'm happy to say I got some real deep cuts in there. No pun intended. So for next time, we're going to dig into the back shelves of the video store and go with controversial independent filmmakers the Soska Sisters and their 2012 cult classic, American Mary. See you then.